I love the lectionary calendar that just throws things in your lap. These days, there is much to complain about when it comes to air travel. There are the long lines, the ever-shrinking seats, I've noticed it. There's the long delays, sometimes sitting on the tarmac for hours. And of course, there's the escalating costs. I'm even old enough to remember when we actually got food on airplanes. Remember that? These days, there's a lot to complain about when it comes to air travel. But no matter how bad things get for us, they rarely get as bad as was depicted in the 2006 movie classic, Snakes on a Plane. (laughs) If you're bold enough to raise your hand, how many of you have seen Snakes on a Plane? See me after church. <laughs> there are such good movies out there. No. Full confession, I didn't see it. I had the thing with snakes. But, but I saw the preview once in a movie theater, and that was enough for me. The preview, you can look on YouTube, it begins with an ominous voice. Imagine your greatest fears, the ones that paralyze you, the ones that render you hopeless. Now imagine them all at once. These words are followed by clips of people trapped on an airplane with snakes everywhere. I mean, they're dropping from the overhead compartments. They're crawling out from under seats, out of food trays, in the bathroom, out of the toilet. They're everywhere. It's enough to send anyone, even Samuel L. Jackson, over the edge. We are more than halfway through Lent, which means that over the past few weeks, while trapped in this tight space, we've been inundated with challenging teachings, difficult passages, and conversations about suffering and death, all when taken together is enough to send us to the edge. Lent, when taken seriously, is not easy. It's a long 40 days with themes that are at times too heavy and often all too real. Well, to put our Lenten journey into perspective, it might be good for us to remember that the Israelites were in the wilderness not for 40 days, but for 40 years. 40 years of wandering in the desert with the land of Canaan just out of reach. 40 years of sleeping in tents with their family. 40 years of eating quail in the evening and this bland stuff called manna in the morning. Forty years of waiting for God to fulfill God's promise of a land for them. And as you might imagine, during those 40 years of waiting and journeying and wandering, the Israelites did a lot of complaining. They didn't like the food. The water was bitter. They were hot. They were tired. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. Surely slavery is better than even this. More than once, they found themselves on the edge And when they did, they did what all of us do. They complained. I consider it a cardinal rule of parenting, having survived three toddlers, that when a kid goes over the edge, when they start acting a little crazy, when they throw a fit, before you join them in the endeavor, it's a good idea to consider if there's a good reason for their bad behavior. One parenting expert, and there are many, 
parenting experts, came up with a clever mnemonic to help tired parents remember what to look for in those moments of crisis. HALT, he says, H-A-L-T. Before you lose your cool with your little one, ask yourself, huh, could they be hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? I've also found this strategy works well with your spouse or significant other. (laughs) Ask yourself, might they be hungry or angry or lonely or tired? Well, after 20 or so years when this story takes place, 20 or so years of being in the desert, the Israelites weren't just hungry or angry or lonely or tired. They were all these things at the same time. So they complained. They whined. They threw a fit. Despite all God had done for them, they were angry. And they complained, this time, not only to Moses, but also against God. And so God responds. God responds by sending snakes. Lots and lots of snakes. Poisonous snakes. The kind of snakes that if they bite you, you're going to die. Well, if God was trying to get the people's attention and our attention, the snakes worked, I think. In fact, this story marks the last in this particular series of complaints by the people of Israel. They, they got it. They figured it out. It wasn't a good idea to complain anymore. They realized the mistake, the error of their ways. So they went to Moses and begged Moses, went to God first, seeking repentance, turned around and begged Moses to ask God to take the snakes away. God brought the snakes. Surely God could vacuum them up somehow and take them away. And God did intervene on their behalf. God did do something, just not what they expected. Instead of getting rid of all the snakes, God leaves them there amongst the people and tells Moses to fashion a snake out of bronze, put it up on a pole, and teach people to look at the snake on the pole when they're bitten if they want to live. God doesn't take the snakes away. God puts a snake on a pole. One day while working as a hospital chaplain, Barbara Brown Taylor was called to the pediatric floor to sit with a mother whose five-year-old daughter was in surgery. She complained of a headache a few days before, and then eventually she lost all vision in her eye, and she couldn't see. A CAT scan revealed a tumor pressing in on her optic nerve, and so she was now in surgery, the five-year-old, to have the tumor removed. Taylor found the girl's mother sitting in the waiting room beside an ashtray overflowing with cigarette butts. After sitting for a while in silence, as chaplains have been trained to do, the mother speaks and tells Taylor why her daughter is sick. It's my punishment, she says, for smoking these damn cigarettes. God couldn't get my attention any other way, so he made my baby sick. She began to cry. Now I'm supposed to stop, but I can't stop, and I'm going to kill my own child. Having been trained, Barb Brown Taylor quickly responds, I don't believe God works that way. I don't believe in a God like that. The God I know wouldn't do something like that. Later, when she was reflecting on the conversation, Taylor realized that even though the answer she gave 
was heartfelt and I think theologically accurate, it probably wasn't all that helpful to that anguished mother because it messed with her worldview when she needed it most. Taylor writes, however miserable it made her, she preferred a punishing God to an absent God. If there was something wrong with her daughter, then there had to be a reason why. She was even willing to be the reason. At least that way she could get a grip on what was happening. Our observance of Lent each and every year is a wilderness that we create and we control. We decide in these 40 days what we're going to abstain from or what we might take on. And when we fail, which we always do in our commitments, we have a chance to practice some repentance. We return to God and say we're sorry. Unfortunately, the true wilderness times of our lives are not ones that we choose, and they certainly are not ones that we control. They are the ones that overwhelm us and bring us to our knees. And when we've been in that kind of wilderness long enough, like the Israelites after 20 years of wandering in the desert, we can't even remember how we got there, let alone how we're ever going to get out. We just want someone to blame and some way to explain what it all means. That wilderness you did not choose is a diagnosis you never saw coming. It's the betrayal that cuts you to the core. It's that relationship that makes you miserable but that you can't seem to change. It's the cycle of addiction that has a vice grip on your soul. And it's that sneaking suspicion that if anyone knew the truth about you, they would recoil in horror. And it was this kind of wilderness that was terribly and undeniably real to the people of Israel. Their time out there was hard and long and boring and miserable and hot. And they had every right to complain. And when they did complain, God, the God who loved them, the God who saved them, the God that was with them each and every step of the way, sends poisonous snakes. And this was no Hollywood scene scripted for a movie. This was the real deal. And it had to be absolutely terrifying. The main character in the movie True Grit, which is much better than Snakes on a Plane, the main character in the movie True Grit is an absolutely fearless 14-year-old girl determined to avenge her father's violent death. By the end of the movie, this courageous teen has survived drunks, bandits, and shootouts. So when she falls into a pit and gets her foot tangled up in a vine, we figure she'll find a way out. That's just what she does. She's fearless. Looking around for something to cut the vine, she sees a knife attached to a dead man's body, and so she reaches out and drags the dead man toward her so she can grab the knife and cut the vine and be free. But as she drags the body toward her, she disturbs a nest of rattlesnakes. And as she watches them slither her way, she is trapped, frozen in fear, unable to move. And it's only then, when she is forced to stare death right in the eye, that she finally shows fear. 
And it's that moment in the movie that she becomes recognizable to the rest of us. At that moment, she becomes human in a way to us that she simply had not been before. God sent snakes. God also sent the cure. And the cure turned out to be the very source of the people's fear. Because God longs for our transformation and not our perpetuation, instead of taking away our fears, instead of eliminating our fears, God often uses our fears to get us to wake up and pay attention. The Israelites were not freed from Pharaoh's grasp so they could survive. They were saved by God so they would never be enslaved again. But they were distracted. They were distracted by their fears. Their fears of death, hunger, and loneliness. They were no longer paying attention to what God was doing in their midst. Which is why, by God's grace, I think the snakes in the story are a sacrament. The snakes in the story are a sacrament, much like baptism or communion. The snakes are a sacrament that when gazed upon, allow one to see through to the great physician who alone is our hope and our salvation. Through the snakes, the people see the power of God. To be healed from the snake's venom, we are told the people are to look up at the snake on the pole when they are bitten by a snake on the ground. They have to stop looking for dangerous things around them, stop being afraid with their head down and look up to the bronze snake on a pole. They were taught to stare down their fear so they could experience again the power of God. In the second Harry Potter, there's this great snake called the basilisk that when gazed upon, turns the ones who look upon it into stone. You know, it's funny, even though the basilisk is a work of fiction, many of us, it's my observation, myself included, live as if our fears have that kind of power over us. If we look at it, really look at that thing we're terrified of, we are going to be frozen into stone. Well, I'm here to tell you our world is not ruled by magic. It is ruled by God. Gazing upon our fears does not enslave us. Gazing upon our fears sets us free. Sooner or later, we will all be bitten. And to survive that day, the day we are forced to recognize that we cannot save ourselves, we will have to stop looking for snakes on the ground and raise our eyes up to the one who has been lifted up on a cross of all things, Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh, light in the darkness, whose painful, humiliating death, a death we all, if we're honest, fear for ourselves, a death that turned out to be the greatest display of power the world has ever seen. The only way through the wilderness is through the wilderness. The only way to overcome our fears is to face them, pay attention to them, and then hold them up into the light. Christ has been lifted up on a cross. This is not magic or idolatry. 
It's the truth of what it means to be human, to be loved and claimed by the one whose suffering reveals the extent of God's power and God's love for us. Lift up your eyes and you will live. Amen.